Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you who've decided to listen to the Bad Face Consulting podcast presented by Native Hope. I don't know if you're driving to work. I don't know if you're in the gym working out. I don't know if you're, you know, taking some time to yourself at home. But the fact that you decided to download our podcast and spend this part of your day listening to our perspective on some of these issues is extremely humbling. And on behalf of me and Ray, I just want to say thank you. This podcast is going to go hard on a lot of issues in our community. You know, it's going to provide a perspective from two people who grew up in Pine Ridge. You know, we don't pretend to be the authority on these issues. We don't pretend to be experts. We don't pretend to speak for everybody from our community. But what we do provide is a perspective on topics that impact the people we love as told from two individuals who spent their life on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. That worldview shapes our opinion. That worldview of, of people who grew up actually, you know, in their communities, you know, who experienced the hardships, you know, or who overcame things and found success later in life. You know, we've been through all that. We've seen that. And, you know, we're lucky to have this opportunity because a lot of the people that we grew up with, the opportunity to do something like this was taken from them by, you know, outside forces, you know, suicide or incarceration or addiction. And we understand that we have a chance to do something here very special. With that said, this wouldn't be possible without the help of our sponsors. Native Hope Media, the Native Governance Center, the Rosebud Economic Development Corporation, Wolpula Consulting, the Pine Ridge Area Chamber of Commerce, and the Pine Ridge Trading Company. Each of these sponsors are out there making an impact in Indian country every single day. Native Hope Media is helping to spread a positive message, an authentic message about our communities. The Native Governance Center, they're out here helping our tribal leaders better develop policy, learn from each other, train future leaders, helping to make sure that going into the future, we're prepared for what our communities are going to face. The Rosebud Economic Development Corporation, they're operating on the Sichangu Nation. They're out there building businesses. They're out there providing job training. They're out there teaching entrepreneurs how to sustain their business. They're doing important work in that economy and important setting a, a, a wonderful example for tribal governments across the country about, you know, how do you figure out a way to dig yourself out of poverty? How do you figure out a way to free yourself from government funding? How do you get out of the grant culture? You know, all the things that they're doing over at Redco under the direction of Wheezy is very, very vital to, to improving our nations, to helping secure our sovereignty, helping secure our food sovereignty, you know, showing a path to success for our young people that are coming, and, and Redco's doing a wonderful job at it. If you don't know about Wopula Consulting, Wopula Consulting is started by Lillian Sparks Robinson. Lillian, one of my relatives, you know, someone was part of my Washington, D.C. family, you know, Georgetown graduate, worked in the White House, worked on Capitol Hill, basically done everything there is to do in D.C., decided to go off and start herself a consulting firm to help tribal communities with basically everything, healthcare improvement, policy development. They even do some public relations work. So if you're out there, you know, you're looking for someone who can give your tribal organization, your tribal government, you need a little advice on really anything from economic development to, you know, healthcare improvement. They got a wonderful team over there of people, including my mom. My mom works for, for Wolpula Consulting. So 
get online, look them up, wopilaLLC.com, and see if there's something that they can do for you. Our other sponsor, the Pine Ridge Area Chamber of Commerce, Ivan Sorbel, been there for almost two decades, helping our community, you know, helping Pine Ridge grow businesses, helping to create an environment where small businesses can survive. One of my first jobs when I got out of college was working under Ivan. You know, Ivan provides a style of leadership that can almost guarantee success for anybody because, you know, he's a Marine, you know, he, he provides discipline, he provides accountability, and it reflects in, in the work that they've done at the chamber. You know, go on to, you know, whenever you Google Pine Ridge Area Chamber of Commerce or you Google the Pine Ridge Area, you know, Pine Ridge Area, Cham Area Chamber of Commerce, excuse me, comes up first. And you can find out all about their doing to help artists, to help small businesses. Look them up, see if they can do something for you. And finally, an old reliable Bat and Patty Puyer with the Piners Trading Company. I, I sent them a message. I said, hey, look, we're starting a new podcast. You know, we're looking for support. And within minutes, I got a message back and saying, look, we like what you're doing. We're absolutely going to support it. We support your business and we hope you succeed. A message like that coming from Bat and Patty Puyer, if you don't know who they are, you know, Big Bat's Texaco in Pine Ridge. I'm not sure what it is now. Big Bat's Conoco, but it's always been that staple of what a successful business could look like in our community. You know, it's an institution. When you come to Pine Ridge, right in the middle of town, right at our four-way is Big Bat's. And it's always been there, you know, for my whole life. I, I, I've seen it there. I've seen people work there. I've seen them provide job training. I've seen them provide employment. I've always looked at Bat and Patty as people who, who, who've shown others that on a reservation, you can build a business. On a reservation, if you do things right, if you work hard, you can create something really, really special. People have been there for us. They supported us and made this show possible. So we get in the show, you know, me and Ray say some crazy things. Um, we hope we don't offend anyone. We hope we don't make anybody too mad. But you know, it was a wonderful process. Love you all. Thank you for being there for us. Talk to you soon. The views expressed in this podcast are our own and does not represent the views of our sponsors. I have only two concerns in my life, racism and freedom. I want to see freedom for my people in my lifetime, somewhere in the Western Hemisphere, whether it's in the Northwest Territories of Canada are somewhere high in the Andes. My people are gonna be free. What's good, Turtle Island? From the Lakota Nation and beyond, this is the Bad Face Consulting Podcast presented by Native Hope. I'm your host, Ray Rowan, alongside the founder and owner of Bad Face Consulting, Brandon Ekafee. We'd like to welcome you all to the first episode of the Bad Face Consulting Podcast presented by Native Hope, where we'll be touching on everything from current events, politics, music, sports and entertainment, and everything that matters most, not only in our own communities, but indigenous communities all across North America. It's been a long time coming. I put a lot of work in. It feels good to be here doing this first podcast, doing something's never been done in Indian country before. We're here. We made it. <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't have never gave me a microphone, man, but it's going to be a good time. We're going to do a lot of good things. With the times today, we need something like this to be able to represent us because we are misrepresented in everything. It's got to be unscripted because you got to give it the reality of what's going on from people who live there and who live on the streets, who, who grew up there, who worked there, who raised kids there. You know, these things matter, but yet nobody gives a shit. Not, not the local news. Not some of even our own native papers and, and news outlets. Some of them just want that story and they don't really want to let people be heard. 
it comes down to the fact that a lot of the people who are enduring the most suffering, a lot of the people who are bearing the full weight of misguided federal policy, the, the, the full weight of the misinterpretation of their culture, of their legal status, whatever, are the ones that are living on a reservation. And their stories are not being told. Their stories are not being portrayed accurately in the mainstream news, in the mainstream native, native media. And it's gone a long time without any correction, a long time without any real accountability for these news sources. And when I think about, without about, about, you know, bad face consulting, I think, how has no one ever thought before now to create, you know, you know, a company that would help our yeah. organizations, help our tribal governments, create transparency and tell their good stories and communicate with the people. I, I'm very blessed that no one thought to do this, but I'm still taken back that no one has thought that, you know, our community could benefit from, from professional communications work. And we could all get so much out there to people who, who don't necessarily have the resources or, or, you know, are able to go and, and educate themselves further in, in facilities or have the internet that they can research this stuff and educate themselves on what's going on. You know, we need to be able to provide that outlet to those who aren't, that don't have internet in the rural communities. You know, a lot of these, these people who live on the reservations, they, they live outside the reservation because they choose to live one with the land and they're disconnected. But we need to somehow bring print back to them as well because I think that's a very important thing that needs to, to be dealt with because a lot of them are just out there and they don't know what's going on and they get ideas from all of these politicians that go and be like, well, you, we need this and we need that and I need you to vote for this and we need you to vote for this person. And it all gets down to manipulation of... of information covering a story is hard in reservation communities because the, the 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 papers responsible for doing it are the news outlets that are responsible for doing it are stretched so thin you know it's a rural community like you look at pine ridge like you know if you're living in pine ridge and, and something pops off in allen and there's a news story out there man you're looking at how long does it take to get to allen from across from one corner to one corner of pine ridge reservation all the way out to the other side it imagine takes, how the cops feel yeah it takes yeah and, and and that's what i'm saying it's like impossible to cover all that news completely and accurately because of, of what's going on and and you look at the news that 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 the, that the mainstream native media news is doing about our communities how how can they accurately portray news stories Right. When they're not there, exactly. you know, and when, when, when we're here, try and Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And again, from my Facebook is where they're getting it from, you know what I'm Holy saying? Shad. <laughs> Talking to you, Shad. Oh, yeah. So like I'm saying, like, it's hard to cover news in Indian country when you're living in a community and you have all the contacts and you have all the sources. But I, I, I'm willing to bet that it's absolutely impossible to cover news stories in Indian country when you're sitting at a desk in... Washington D.C. You're sitting at a desk in New York City. You know, you Skyline make Skyline view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only do so much by scrolling Facebook and making one phone call to someone that you think knows everything that don't know a goddamn right. thing about what's really happening. I just talked to John Redcorn and he told me something's going down at the Butte. Yeah, yeah. We don't know what Butte. Who the fuck is John Redcorn? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, that's what I'm saying. King of Hill. <laughs> but yeah so so i mean there's there's a lot of that going on in indian country where there isn't accurate news coverage because 
people want to be first. They want to hit that fame. There's a lot of competition for who breaks the big stories, and, and I abandoned that a long time ago. So, so when did uh, when did Bad Face become a, a reality to you from your dream? That <laughs> from, you... from my dream. So, so the story, your vision, the idea for, for is is it's kind it's kind of a cool it's kind of a cool the origins of of where Bad Face Consulting comes from because. I was actually sitting in a Native Nation Rebuilder Foundation seminar. And, and you know, the Native Nation Rebuilder Program is, is something that was put on by the Bush Foundation. And there were people who, who, who they thought, you know, are people who, who, won, who wanted leadership training or whatever. And they, and they, they made all these cohorts. So now there's, there's been several of them, multiple of them. And so anyway, so I was accepted to this, this Native Nation Rebuilder Program. And, and, and we, get, so we get sent off. We didn't get sent off, but we get invited to to stay at this nice casino up at Mystic Lake. We'll stay at Mystic Lake. Nice. We get nice rooms. We get you now they take care of us real good. And and for me, it's man, no I, expense. Yeah, they did. They really not. They really did it. They take care of the people because the thing was was they wanted they their their belief was that they they had an idea of who uh, change makers were, or people who could influence people in Indian country, and so they recruited them types of people. And I was very blessed to be one of them people. I nice. think. You know, maybe someone like Kevin Killer or someone might have suggested me put my name and hooking me up. And anyway, so I'm sitting in a seminar with with all these other like super, super smart native people. And for me, you know, I was just blown away. I'm like, man, I, I don't even like I used to think that I didn't belong in those types of situations. And I looked at it like, what am I doing here? And 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 so they start doing these presentations and telling everybody to come up, you know, what do you do? What do you do for a living? You know, what contributions do you make to your community? What do you do? And so each person was going up there and saying, well, I run this program. Or, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I'm working with kids. I do suicide prevention. You know, when I do fitness, you know, I do wellness. You know, I, I work for my tribal chairman. They all had these these different things that they did. And they're all sitting there talking and they're, pres they're presenting all they're doing. It. And I'm sitting there as a someone who... I worked at, at the time, I was, I believe I was the, the managing editor at Native Sun News. And so I'm like, I kind of felt bad or, you know, I felt weird that so many of these people had great stories and, and great accomplishments that I hadn't heard about and that I hadn't done the due, due diligence to cover their stories. And I'm like, man, why, why, why is it that... Some missing. Well, why is it that, that so many of white communities our non-native communities <coughs> and even even indian communities outside of the reservation are having all these wonderful stories told about them like people are being promoted people are being blown up people are yeah. you know they're, they're being shot yeah they're getting money oh well, even like even like things are getting opportunities they're getting chances at grants they're getting all this this run in, in like new york times the things are blowing up for for people Everyone outside the, the reservation communities, and I felt like I felt man, I felt bad about that because I felt yeah. like I was doing a good job at telling these stories. And reality, man, like there was so much good going on right in my backyard in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, in this area right here that wasn't being told that that I realized that something was broken within the system. You know what is it? What is the break in the system that is preventing this information from reaching news outlets? And I'm sitting there. And I'm, I'm just kind of taking it all in, like I'm laid back. I, I, I'm always laid back, like I got sitting in a corner, I'm sitting back by myself, and I'm just listening. And, and I realized, man, I was like, there has to be a company out there that or some kind of service out there that can teach these tribal organizations 
how to take their good stories, how to take their successes, and communicate that information to the people, and then communicate that information to the news outlets outside of the community. Right. And, and, and to my surprise, nobody had been doing this stuff. And I'm like, man, I, I've been a, a journalist for a long time, you know, going on four or five years, and, you know, I love my work and everything, but, you know, I'm getting older, and I, I got to pay my bills, I got to find something to do. I'm like, well, you know what? I got skills to teach these people how to do this. I got the connections. I got the network. You know, I even got like people who graphic designers and other journalists and people who I know are smart from my community who can't find work in the field, in the field, in the media field. You know, why don't I do this? And so I had a little napkin in front of me and and I should have been paying attention to what was going on. <laughs> you know, I'm ADD. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I started jotting this stuff down and I started thinking about, kind of just kind of like contemplating about this company, you know, what it could be, what kind of change we could bring, what kind of influence would it have, what what kind of value could we bring to our communities? And I sat there and I thought about it and I and, and I had this idea. And so I just kind of left it on that, I left these, these ideas, I brainstormed right there on the, on my notepad or whatever. And anyway, so later on in that day, I kind of, I, I keep thinking about it, I can't get it off my mind. I've kind of becoming like obsessed about it. I go for a run and, and, this this name keeps coming in my I, I was at the time I was reading a book. There was a book called um, "The Heart of Everything That Is," and it was it was this this dope book about they found a manuscript that, that Red Cloud had written, and and it was a, this manuscript that just nobody had seen before, no one had researched, no one had covered, and so these two I think they they were white guys like they they covered and they wrote the story. You wrote in English. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we could, yeah. Well, well, they they read and they they looked at the translation of it, transcribed and, it. Yeah, and so they took what was in that that manuscript, and you know, and, and did like the historical research and mashed it up with dates and times and other, you know, did whatever you know scientists do to verify and awesome. make sure everything is correct. And so I I start reading this book, and and I had been reading this book for a few months, and and the book talked about you know Red Cloud, and you know talked about his family and you know where he came from, and and he and Things didn't always go just right for him when he was young. Like, like you know, his, his, you know, his his biological father had some issues with alcohol, according to the book, you know, and 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 so and he was taken in by his, you know, by his his relatives, and and, and they raised him. And he in in the book, the the way they portrayed it was that he kind of grew up with a chip on his shoulder that he had to he had to create something more. He had to outperform everybody, and and that was kind of the way that the authors talked about it. That was mm-hmm. his motivation was that he had this chip on his shoulder. He had to prove more. He had to overcome you know whatever whatever you know issues he had within himself and and that pushed him to do great things and so you get to reading this book and at the height of red cloud's power at the you know when he had the most influence our people you know with with you know our relatives around us we we -hmm. controlled one-fifth of the continental united states literally one fifty and 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 yeah. within within this 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 giant you know this this giant nation this this giant you know confederacy you know of uh, this 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 original you know tribal so- example of tribal yeah. sovereignty and tribal nationhood was was this one man who 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 instituted his reign through you know along with his society of warriors and his the society of warriors that he came with were they were called the bad faces you know that they were right. they were teachers what they were called it and that okay. and you know and of course you know people out there got yeah. better better Lakota than me and better dialects that they kill me for that, but you know what I'm saying but but 
yeah, and this is what they were called. And you know, I, and I read this book and I and looked at all the accomplishments of our people and all the accomplishments that, and, and the pride that, that our people had in, in controlling this land. And so even people, so when you look at, like you think about Red Cloud's power, everybody within this, 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 this land range, this, this area that he controlled, that our people controlled, the, the, the common language between tribes was Lakota. You know, he had everyone, everybody was speaking that yeah. language, the language of trade, the language and they of... snuffed it out. The language of commerce. Yeah. Well, well, I'm just saying, like, like yeah. this, this was when we controlled absolutely everything. And, and in the book, it talks about the society of warriors he had, and they were basically like a, like a, like a reaction, a quick reaction force that, you know, they, they could deploy and they, they could deploy faster than anyone. They had advanced intelligence about everybody, right. about the enemy. They, and they talk about this big treaty gathering... And it was with the seals. Yeah, it was. Yeah, like that's what they were at the time. They were like a special forces unit that was beyond anything that anyone had ever seen in this part of the country. Their horsemanship skills were were insanely good. You know, their physical fitness, their ability to persevere through heat, through thirst, through you know struggle, through injury. You know, all these things that they they did was was under the direction of Red Cloud. Right. And so they tell they tell this story. You know, and this so this story was really what what kind of like inspired me to, to name the company after them was that they were at this big treaty meeting and this Indian agent was out here and the, 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 the Calvary's and the military's motivation was they wanted to scare all these natives, you know, so they lined up all these cannons and horses and they have all their ammunition on display, all this stuff, yeah. they, you know, messing with the Civil War and bringing up here and pretending like right. that was going to do something. And, and so they have it on display and they're firing these cannons and they're showing off everything and they're acting like, you know, this is something to be to be afraid of. We're gonna show these little mm -hmm. Indians and show these uncivilized people, these people with no right. technology on what the force is behind yeah. us, you know. They're trying to show it off and and they think they're showing something and, and colonizers. Often, yeah, yeah. And, and off in the corner, right, is, is Red Cloud and the bad faces. They're not they didn't go in, they didn't engage in the ceremonies, they didn't dance, they didn't you know, they weren't shaking hands, they weren't being, they, they were back there observing. And and what Red Cloud saw was that them cannons took a long time to reload. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's what he saw. He's like, he's like, man, like, okay, they think this is like, oh man, they can shoot yeah. it. But, but by the time they take them to... Three, four, five arrows before they get another cannon. Yeah, 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 yeah. and that's what they were. And, and, that's, and that's how they... And, and so what they relied on was this this mastery of technique this mastery of seeing ahead the mastery of understanding how the enemy conducted itself and i was looking at it and i'm like man this is exactly what our people need right now mm -hmm. is a company that can go out and look at things and be like man i understand what 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 tiger fire with fire <laughs> you know when you bring it to the yeah you know what i'm saying well, well look at look at standing rock you, know, you think a tiger swan yeah Tiger Swan was was doing, um, you know, manipulating opinion through the use of information. Right. You know, and 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 Sounds these familiar. are yeah. It, it, this is you know these are tools being deployed against us in situations like that. So, what our communities need is the ability to to defend themselves against those types of manipulation tactics. They need the ability to communicate their points, their positions, and they also need the ability to communicate with their own people. And when they have that ability to communicate with their own people. The people feel like they are, you know, playing a role in the government. They're part of the decision-making process. Yeah. 
And but you know, but but and, and when it's not going on, so right now in any country that isn't going on, no. the people don't have a free flow of information, and so they feel disenfranchised and they feel like they don't believe. It feels like it doesn't matter. It feels yeah, they don't and they don't want to participate. They don't want to take part in voting elections and and all these right. things because they don't feel like they're part of that important process. Mm. And so why? Yeah, and and it why isn't it isn't that 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 tribal governments are out to hide stuff and maybe in some cases some individuals are but as institutions it's gonna happen everywhere whether it's on the reservation or outside that's absolutely there there's there's rogue people in any organization but as an institution i don't believe that tribal governments are out to hide things and out to keep information from the people i just think that they haven't necessarily been shown how to do that i totally dig what you're doing with bad face man it's awesome it's needed it's it's something that needs to happen years ago, but yeah, we're going right now. All right, recently Brandon sat down with Chase Ironizing, an American Indian activist, attorney, politician, and a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. He is a member of the Lakota People's Law Project and co-founder of the Native American news website, Last of Real Indians. So what was that like, man? It was interesting. It was a lot of t- abstract talk kind of about some, some, some interesting issues or some issues that really are talkative people talk about out there you know we talked about mascot stuff we talked a lot about no dapple we talked about his case because because you know when he during during the no dapple stuff or whatever you know there were different camps putting on acts you know acts of of resistance throughout the Mm -hmm. day you know they'd go to certain sites and block the road or you know they would they would go and occupy machinery bulldozers or everything so what happened was chase in his camp they had a they had an action that was gonna gonna take place, and you know the police were aware of it way far ahead of time, and they all show up there and they all have their faces covered or whatever, and as it goes on, you know the the police are meeting and and they all come together and you know they come out while well, they say all right well we we want Chase, so they pick Chase out of the crowd and they hem him up or whatever you know lock him up don't put him in there and they charge him with inciting a riot, which is a felony in North Dakota, and. What's interesting about it is so since No Dapple, there's been a lot of crazy things that have come out. One of the things that came out was that there was like these guys who were basically doing special operations forces, you know, special op- special ops work in places like Afghanistan and the Congo, right? you know, in African countries and all over the world. We're doing all these, you know, they were doing special operations forces and these people were deployed to Standing Rock by private security companies like... Um, Tiger Swan, Tiger Swan is a is a spinoff from Blackwater. You know, if you if you know who Blackwater yeah. is, Blackwater the contractors in Iraq. You know, did a uh-huh. lot of horrible things over there. You know, founded by Eric Prince. Eric Prince is the brother of Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education under Trump. Uh-huh. So you know, so so you know, Trump's people, you know, holding it down or whatever. You know, it is what it is. But so these people who have been used to doing anti-terrorism work, you know, information work within these these war zones were deployed to Standing Rock. And what happened in Standing Rock is that it's the first time, you know, in kind of the modern modern era of, of activism that we've seen a partnership between state and federal and military with private contractors operating and providing assistance and intelligence on American citizen. 
Now, before we leave you with Brandon's interview with Chase Ironize, we just want to give another shout out to our sponsors, Native Hope, a nonprofit organization working in Native communities throughout the United States. With offices in Chamberlain, South Dakota and Santa Fe, New Mexico, they believe in bringing hope and healing through the power of storytelling. In their mobile production van, the Native Hope Media team visits reservations, pueblos, and other Native communities in both rural and urban areas to document authentic stories. They are represented by a group of Native and non-Native Americans who are dedicated to empowering Native youth on and off the reservation, inspiring them to have a voice, take positive action, and become strong leaders for their tribes. To find out more about Native Hope, go to their website at nativehope.com. What's up, Chase? Um, we finally got together after after a few weeks of planning, a couple delays, but you're here now, you know, opening up the, the first show of the Bad Face Consulting Podcast brought to you by Native Hope. And we're just kind of looking to touch base with you, look at some of your, your activism, look at some of the, the things you've accomplished as a Native person, some of the experiences you had as a, an advocate for the people, and, and you know, some of the, the difficulties and struggles and all those things that, that you've come across, you know, through your work. But one of the first things I kind of wanted to, to touch on was a serious matter, and, and it had to do with, with Burning Man. Yes. <laughs> so a few years ago, or, you know, roughly two years ago or whatever, the tape shows up of, of you standing in, in, a, in what seemed like a crowd of, of kind of, you know, crazy white people standing around, beating drums, bouncing their head. And, and when I saw it, you know, I... I looked at everyone and, and people were kind of, you know, oh, Chase, you know, what is he condoning? Is this appropriation or whatever? And I could see it on your face when I looked at the picture and I'm like, I could see you were trying to comprehend the situation also. And it wasn't like you was in the middle of it, kind of, you know, <laughs> leading the charge or leading the chant. But, you know, what was going on at that moment? <clears throat> you know, uh, I think what was the date on that? That was, uh, I think it was August, September of 2017. Um, I didn't know at the time we were invited there. Some of us, a lot of us were invited there for, uh, they called it an international, uh, drum prayer. And so a lot of people who, who knew about one of the camps at Burning Man called Red Lightning, uh, a lot of the people that had interacted with different brothers and sisters from Red Lightning, uh, wanted to, to go out and show support for that, uh, event. And also, at the time, we were just, um, well, at least I was engaged in the process of traveling um, in this transformational festival scene, this whole scene on the West Coast. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole other uh, demographic out there, a genre of music and different, just, just a wild world out there. But they're, they're, I think they're primed for, for um, kind of uh, activation or, 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 you know, some of the things that are important to not just native people, but to Americans, to people that care about water, their ecosystems and so forth. There's a lot of bridge building to be done there. And that's kind of always been my stance in, in the work that I do. I, I catch hell from time to time for it. You know what I mean? Just being sometimes too open. Um, but we went there and the moment we were walking out, I knew that, you know, the optics were going to be really... Uh, they were going to be bad because of the dynamic that the things that we've gone through as native people, indigenous people, original people, or however you want to term it. But there's been a colonization, and you know what happened at Burning Man was was kind of touching those things that we hold sacred, like the, the drum and the song. You know what I mean? I, I knew exactly where people were coming from. 
Um, and so I knew it was a, a serious matter. But I, I also knew that we went there with, the, with good intentions, with nothing but good intentions. It's just the brother who made that little um, spoof clip, that was some good work. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. Like it, it did its job. Yeah. It hit, it ran a viral cycle with, within any country um, pretty quickly. And I don't know. Uh, I seem to have, you know, and I was, it took me about 48 hours of kind of internal, just some introspection, really thinking about it. What it was, what it was doing, what it meant for us to be there, and for us to do that, and uh, um, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, yeah. It's it's, a, it's it's ripe for discussion. It should be talked about it at the NCAIs or, or the NIGAs or even other stuff that we organize on on our own. Like we should be really talking about that pop, where where Native America intersects with pop cultures. Is that that's that's kind of why what we do really. Uh, even even has some um, some relevance because people are interested in it. It's the experiences that we're living. You know what I mean? But yeah, that was. Um, what I'd go again. Let's put it this way: I'd go to Burning Man again, but not for the intent to uh, to unite spiritually. You know what I mean? Because that's that's what was in my my heart and my mind when I when I went there, and uh, I, I feel that that was accomplished to some extent. But definitely the 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 over it was overshadowed by. <laughs> by this uh the controversy that it started when i when i look at it i've always thought about what these types of people what they're searching for at burning man what they're searching for at coachella you know what they're searching for when they're taking dmt or they're taking mushrooms or they're they're taking these hallucinogens to try to access this this level of consciousness or to escape you know the traumas that they have in their own life to find what what kind of what we already experience through our ways of prayer. You know, you talk about the these this this uniform experience that people have when they go on DMT, and they say that they all kind of end up in the same this same area of, of the same experience almost from yeah. it. And and when when I try to explain what our spirituality is, you know, what we feel we feel when we're taking part in these ceremonies is I think is something that they're looking for. And so I haven't been as critical as people who have tried to appropriate or, or have appropriated our culture in ways that, that, that they've done it in a pure way, in a way to be good or in a way to pray. And that's also a lot different from, you know, the mascot or from, you know, when people are dressing up like Indians on Halloween. You know, I think there's a there's value in having a discussion and distinguishing between those two types of appropriation. Yeah, well, I'm, I'd say, you know, Calling to for an end to first of all, I want to say that I think you're right on with, uh, um, you know, with with this uh, this maybe this call it a void in the Western psyche or or, or something in their experience of the, they have their own colonization experience you now that goes back I don't know it that well maybe five thousand years or more I'm trying to trying to learn as I go but I can tell that what happened to us has happened to them a long long time ago so they are searching for something they're searching to connect I use the word. Um, that became pretty, pretty uh, no, well well known as a result of the Burning Man fiasco. But that was transcend, sure. and and I think that you know th th we we know it. We just don't term it like that. Hmm. You know what I mean? That's not. I, I admit that sounds new agey, and, and and I'm playing with words a little bit. But what we experience, I, I, I agree. In our ceremony, in our songs, um, they are are looking for that, and they they'll continue to search for it, and 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 they'll search for it in in many different ways. 
but uh, whether that's through hallucinogens, and there's legitimate use of those things, you know, medicinal and therapeutic and, and otherwise. But um, until we start looking at some of those internal uh, things that are, are, and there are many things wrong with Western civilization, uh, but uh, we'd have to begin a, a, a healing there. Um, and, and I will, uh, I'll, I'll add, I guess, and, and just to go back to the, the mascot uh, question, that my, my position on mascots really hasn't changed. I'm, I'm, still call, I was still, I'm still calling for the same change I was 20 years ago, you know, when I first went into uh, the University of North Dakota. And North Dakota is like a 90% white state anyway. So in, in the school, the, the class, I was like the only native guy in the class, and they asked what my opinion was on the fighting Sioux. And at the time, I didn't have an opinion. I never even thought of it. When you grow up on the res, you don't you don't really think of this this Indian mascot question. Although there is valid work being done there that has been done over you know forty years, I would say that the history that I'm familiar with um, that that uh, I, I first became engaged in that in, in 1998, and uh, it took 20 years for the University of North Dakota to to drop its mascot. And we know that, you know, the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, they will also be forced to, to drop their mascot and just become part of this, this social evolution uh, that we're a part of. But since I moved back to the reservation about four years ago, five years ago, um, what I've noticed is that we don't particularly, we on the res don't really care for the Indian mascot issue. But when we are in college, when we live uh, in maybe urban areas or, you know, just he heavy native urban areas or when we're in positions where uh, we're, we're not the majority population maybe or we're, we're forced to be uh, live, live through that, that lens or that dynamic where we've got to see ourselves in their eyes, so to speak. And then you run into to these different opportunities where the Indian mascot question uh, arises, like during a football game or during during a homecoming parade or maybe during Thanksgiving or, or any kind of way like that. But I just think that um, it, it's it's I, I wouldn't I don't know how to explain it without uh, without offending the, the people who dedicate their their life to that sure. work. But it is it is a, a, a kind of a place of privilege, I would say, a, a privilege of education, privilege, uh, you know, of um, of uh, being be, being existing in these other spaces, uh, learning how to navigate those other spaces, and being able to communicate, you know, the spiritual dignity and, and explain the process of objectification to these other audiences, so they can understand why it's inherently uh, damaging and 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 deliberately uh, an attempt to kind of usurp what what I would call our spiritual dignity to take that away from us to 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 completely. Uh, dehumanize us. That's what the mascot process is a part of. But honestly, um, if we just could create our own food uh, security, water security, or energy security, you know, back living back home and back around uh, places that that we dominate, that natives dominate, or at least we should be. I like to think of Rapid as a place that we should be dominating in. You know what I'm saying? Um, we just don't have the luxury of time to think of those things. You know what I mean? Like there's always some emergency, some crisis that we're dealing with but um and and you know by by just the process of how activism works the other the younger cats who are coming out who who can get schooled up on that and take that and lead that the way they want you know what i mean we mm -hmm. 
did did what I had to do, but that work will always go on. It's popularly where, you know, I think I wrote an article about this, I haven't written in a long time, man, but we'll get back into it. But how the, the places where Native America intersects with pop culture, there'll always be an appetite for that, you know what I mean? And mostly what we've seen is like Hollywood concentrating on all the, the, the feathers and the leathers and all that stuff. But sports is another huge, huge place that's part of America's 240-year-old uh, budding, developing cultural identity, you know, they're, they're, they're linked in deep. You know, yeah, that's that's interesting because one of the one of the first things that I that I wrote that kind of went viral was actually um, published on Last Real Indians, and what it was was it was a piece imploring Robert Griffin III to kind of step forward, you know, to almost take a Kaepernick stance against the mascot, and there was such a, a public reaction to to the notion that a, a black quarterback would step up. Or even a suggestion that he, you know, that he would step up and say and and stand up for another racial group against his against his organization against the wishes of the NFL, that it took off and it went viral and it created a conversation around a mascot issue that wasn't necessarily happening in Indian country. But for me, I didn't think about the mascot issue issue at all until I went to college. You know, growing up in Pine Ridge, you know, we had the we had the. We had a Thorpe that was our mascot, you know, and it was a, it was a picture of a chief. And, and, and at the time, I didn't think about that because I identified with that, with that symbol. You know, that was who I am. That's who I grew up as. That's who I grew up looking up to. And then when I get to Dartmouth, you know, the, the notion of, of what a Native mascot does or what it represents was completely replaced in my mind. You know, it wasn't something that I was proud of. It was something that this kid that came from Chevy Chase, Maryland, or this kid that came from Park Avenue. It was his way of, of kind of defining me as the other and his way of saying, you know, I have ownership over your culture. Absolutely. You know, I have ownership of how, how you want to look or how you want to be perceived. You can't decide that for yourself. It's my place to do that because I control this institution. You know, my, my, my great-great-grandfather built Dartmouth, you know, Four generations ago, I've been coming here. I'm a legacy, man. I have pictures of my grandpa and his dog living in this dorm, you know, and that was the kind of things that we had. And it was a a method of control. Yeah. And I never understood a, or even looked at a mascot as a way of classifying somebody within society, mm. you know, looking at their socioeconomic background or automatically placing them into a category through the use of a symbol. Conceptually, we're, they hold us in this other place. And when... They're able to do that. They nipped us in the bud, see, with, with the colonization process, even with the English language. And now it's so hard for us to liberate from that, you know what I mean, to see what they're accomplishing with this Indian mascot process because we have other more pressing things that are just hitting us in the face all the time. But I think you're, th th that's how they want it. That's how they are, are accomplishing it. They were, you know, and that's why language revitalization is so important, important because it's more than just the language, it's, it's, it's the, the archetypes, the foundational archetypes of how we interpret our universe. So mascots have, have kind of become the dominant topic when it comes to Indian country and in, in, in mainstream news. You know, you turn on CNN and you see Simon Moya Smith on there and, you know, he's kind of assumed the role of like the angry Indian. You know, he's mad about the mascot. He's mad about this appropriation thing. And you know, now that I've been in the native news for so long, I understand that there's a place for that and why 
this conversation is featured on CNN. But at the same time, you know, one of the things that really bothers me, and it's one of the things that I've always appreciated about places like Last Real Indians and, and you know, Native Sun News and, and Lakota Country Times, is that those types of issues that are really important outside of the reservation ain't necessarily emphasized to, to our people. You know, we're, we're more worried about, you know, the, the high rates of suicide, the abuse, you know, meth, crime, these immediate concerns. And that goes along with what you were saying is that we don't always have the time or luxury to to deal with, with, with the mascot issue or deal with appropriation issues or deal with Donald Trump calling someone Pocahontas, you know, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't necessarily always trickle down to, to impacting our communities. So when you rent a site like lastrealindians.com, how, you know, how did you look at balancing issues important to the reservation community compared to those outside our community or the urban population who has different concerns than we do? That's a great question. I don't. I don't know how we differentiated that. It was just more uh, what was important to Native people, and because uh, uh, most of us either grew up on the res or still lived on the res, that 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 dynamic I think was expressed in in our writing. And we'll talk more about LRI later about how uh, there's an evolution that that we're we're still trying to adapt to it. You know what I mean? The the way that social media has changed since we created. Um, Last Real Indians, but I, I just remembered the last that I was trying to go back to, talking about mascots and, and the things that America thinks are important for Indians, and that that's a very limited space, and and uh, it includes mascots, it include you know because it includes sports, it includes things like uh, media. If you anytime somebody in the media does something, says something about Indians or or it, Pocahontas and Elizabeth Warren or Trump or whatever, it comes into the sphere, and then mainstream media just. They must go calling or they look on Twitter and they find any native they can and they just get anybody that they can quote. And that's because we're, we don't we don't have our own uh, centralized media system yet. You know what I mean? One that 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 all the people kind of tune into to try to just stay abreast on authentic, authentic uh, expressions of indigenous uh, thought and what's what's going on in our lives. You know what I mean? Because. uh yeah, I, I, I just, I agree. We could talk a lot about the things that go on in, in our day-to-day minds and the challenges that we're dealing with and what we're, how we're all trying to help our community. You know, when you're connected to the res, you can't, it's like, like when I visited Palestine, I'm, I can never forget that now. I can never unsee that. I can never not have compassion for the people of Palestine. It's like that when you come from the res, you know what I mean? Like if you... And I'm saying I'm not saying you have to make it out of the res, you, but you got to make it out of a poverty culture, an imposed poverty culture. And when you do that, when you're able to get out like that, you know, just like w- when when the wolf eats the pack eats, you know, you, you want to help people. So we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but America doesn't want to hear about that. They've got their own the, the, their own uh, tropes or, or or ways that they know Indians, the way that they control access Indians' access to that mainstream, and you know, I'm for the for the people who happen to live in cities who get to get to access that mainstream media. You know, Godspeed to them. But there's also this 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 voice that just never gets heard because we're we're way out in the sticks compared to you know the, the mainstream access that uh, some people might have. Sure, and 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 see, that's kind of the the idea around the podcast here, is and 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 the idea around building a level of authenticity within native news and within native media. But once we start tossing around that word of of authenticity, you know, 
we're kind of tasked with the responsibility of defining that. And for me, I've always approached my work or my approach as a, as a writer, as a native editor, as someone who's operating news or operating media institutions that are meant to serve people living on a reservation is that I've always thought that those issues have been underrepresented in the mainstream media. And so we've consciously pushed those issues out to the forefront. You know, that's what we put on our front page. That's what we put in our columns and everything. But the, but what's actually, you no, know, I've looked at it and, and I've realized that it's hurt me and it's hurt my writers because we're not really willing to almost take on the, the, the persona that we have to fit a certain oh, yeah, yeah. caricature to, to fit into, you know, the mainstream news, what, what they think natives look like. And, and we're always fighting against that. So, um, I no, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with that. I, I am very, I'm familiar with that, uh, that kind of dynamic where whatever, whatever mainstream's appetite is for Native America that day, um, any, any one of those people, those of us who kind of taking on these these unofficial uh, spokespeople for all natives roles and, and I, I say that kind of facetiously because it's it's almost like uh, you know that's what mainstream is is thinking they don't know the difference between you know Oglala and Humpapa or they, they, much less they don't really even know the difference between Lakota and Diné you know mm-hmm. they might not and so you're having to think uh, how to express something on behalf of of native people not that you want to speak for native people but, but just that it, it's applicable generally and, and linguistically and and i i get tired of it i i just i get tired of that's that's the only uh that's the only show in town for us you know what i mean and and by do, by doing podcasting and by uh like maybe what fnx tv is doing there needs to be an an a nationwide legitimate uh, uh, native created uh, native produced internet content icon you know what I mean because so, it, it's the time is there right now and and obviously people are paying we're paying att- enough attention to each other to to probably satisfy that but also people all over the world are, are wondering what native people are doing what we're thinking today and I think it's really underestimated the 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 appetite there is out there for for native content I mean a lot of people still have that that you know the the notion that what we were in the John Wayne movies, you know, that's always been what's defined who Native people are, you know, is, is how we were in the Westerns, how we were in Dances with Wolves, you know, what that's what they've seen from people. And, and then they've also received a, a filtered view of Indian country through, you know, through the Peter Mathesons, you know, mm-hmm. through, you know, some, some people in the mainstream Native news. I mean, Indian country today has, has people sometimes that'll cover things from right. our community that's that's not always accurate indians.com you know just recently done the same thing there was a there was a school in pine ridge and and it, it branded itself as a as a traditional lakota school where people were going to come and they were going to learn the language and everything and that's what went out in their press releases and went out in their publications but and so and so indians.com picked this story up and and they wrote this glowing review of this school and it was so wonderful and you're supposed to send all your donations to it and this is lakota culture and and the the truth behind the situation is is that over the last 3 months they've had three fluent speakers resign you know that the, the person who runs the school isn't a tribal citizen and all this information is well known within our own community but we're combat combating 
a false narrative created by another native news source. And 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 I'm not I'm not saying that you know I I read Indians.com every day. I'm a fan of Kevin Aberesk. I'm a fan of. Um, AC Agoyo, everyone else that works there. I love their work. They're real good to me. But that's one of the problems when we have so many rural communities and only a few a few media outlets to cover them and a few media outlets with a limited amount of staff that isn't always embedded within the community because there isn't a, as many people with those kind of skills within our community to do this type of work. So so it's, it's real interesting. And, and last real Indians, you know, transitioning into talking about what LRI is doing, the roots of LRI, and where Last Real Indians is going now, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's always been a place where accurate narratives from reservation communities have been given a platform to exist. And and now that you're moving into the 21st century, how is LRI responding to 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 an ever changing world? LRI was started uh, in, in 2012, January 1st of 2012. And, you know, that, that stands for Last Real Indians, and that's uh, probably the cheekiest title that I could, that I could think of. Uh, I was blogging under the name The Last Real Indian uh, because I, you know, I, I knew that it's a very loaded title. It's, we could spend a few minutes on that, but Last, last uh, calls into question whether or not, you know, th- there are lasts of anything, of, of our people, of our languages. Uh, it, it's meant to call that into question and, and really make us think about extinction and so forth, because that's, that's part of the plan. Uh, real, uh, that, that of course is a word that is a trigger word. It's kind of like authentic, you know, who decides what is a real Indian? What does that mean to be real? Is it is it DNA? Is it phenotype? Is it skin color? Is it your knowledge, or your, your song, your ceremony, your language, or so forth. You know what I mean? There's a lot in that question that we need to be talking about as Native people. Uh, and then Indian. Uh, people didn't like that that I used the word Indian. And um, I, did, I, I guess I, I see their point. But again, the, the, the point of that title is, you know, that, that word Indian didn't exist on this continent before the coming of, you know, the colonizing people. And uh, it's it's a misnomer, but it call it, it calls that into question, and is meant to to occupy a space in pop culture. Last real Indians to direct people to what I would hope would be you know a, a flourishing kind of uh, evolving and adapting collective uh, consciousness from the indigenous perspective, whether that's in our indigenous languages or in the perspectives that we are able to navigate because of our, our, our academic training or our upbringing, our experiences, or, or otherwise. Um, Native people, that's uh, an LRI, it's, we, we did not successfully monetize it. That's what's, that's what's going on. And we're just now, I'm me and, and my brother Matt Remley, uh, who is up in Seattle, Matt's been pretty much running it for almost three years now. I've just been to, I, I got. I kind of hit a not not a writer's block, but I just I wanted to do other things besides writing. And podcasting is one of those things. You know, writing a book is one of those things. Um, but I, I I feel that there is still a space for, for LRI and for any native. There's a space for bad face. You know what I mean? Like there's a place right now, especially with whatever happened to Indian Country today, uh, and and. I know they're putting. Mark, they're, I think they're republishing it with Mark Trahan as the editor or something, but but um, 
there's nothing that's kind of seen as the vice of Indian country or, or you know what I mean? And that's what I wanted Alarai to be was this place that was unfiltered. Um, but again, I, I, I'll take responsibility for failing to monetize it. There's just a lot going on. Part of it was just to, to be that collective uh, 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 hub of, you know, the indigenous worldview, I guess you could call it, or worldviews. But part, the other part was to, for activism for people to be, you know, at the front line and, and to be able to communicate things. I remember we went viral before you could even go live on Facebook. Mm. I remember the very, the very beginning. And that's the, the, the other thing I'll talk about with LRI and the future of that, and even the future of native media is the advent of social media and how that has changed things, especially for a guy like you who's familiar with how newspapers operate and, and how they've got to they've got to make, make sense. They've got to pencil out, you know, they, the cost got to get... Uh, paid for, but in the beginning of Last Real Indians, people could write a thousand words, two thousand words of an article, and because that's what was in market, so to speak, was authenticity. People would read that whole article and just get woke on whatever some native was was saying about whatever mm -hmm. issue of that day, and it was awesome. It was like that for a, a, a little while. We could go viral organically and different things like this, and then pretty soon Facebook comes in with the algorithms, and now you got to pay. Um, people's attention span just just narrowed quite significantly. Uh, meme culture uh, became a very real thing. I remember reading about meme culture before understanding what the hell it even was. And so our what the audience is doing that may be just a reflection of what our natural tendencies are doing or whatever. But native people are in those spaces that we're all on our smartphones and so forth. So wherever they're at. We've got to be able to go get them. And so, like, what you're doing with podcasting, what what we are doing with, what, what Native Hope is doing with them little two-minute videos, mm -hmm. investing a little bit of, of time to to reach where their audience is at. Because the audience, they're on the go, too, and they only have a, they, maybe they only have a phone. Al, we haven't done that at, at LRI, and that's what I, that's where I want to go, uh, mm -hmm. is just to keep, keep uh, active and keep an active combat, so to speak, with that, that meme and information and, and war for our spirit and our minds, our worldviews, sure. and so forth. You know, just stay active in that. Since Last Real Indians started up, there's been a major, major shift in Indian country as far as activism, as far as the stakes of our activism, as, as, as far as the impact that, that taking certain positions will have on our life. And you were one of the the people who, who, who've always been doing, you know, activism stuff, always been on the front line, always been taking on these issues. But during Standing Rock and during what happened during the, the, the no dapple resistance, you kind of got yourself hemmed up with law enforcement. Can you kind of talk about, about what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so no, no dapple, if you remember, uh, Sacred Stone Camp started on April 1st, 2016. And then construction started in August of 2016. And at that time, I was running for uh, the United States Congress. And so I wasn't out publicly uh, at the camps supporting and, and so forth, or, or just being very vocal about it. Although I had no choice but to be out there. Um, it's, it was my tribal nation, you know what I mean? But at the, at the time I had this other thing going on. Um, and so, uh, wow, there's just, it's just, it's, it's a whirlwind really. I remember the first arrests I remember, uh, you know, how united and, and powerful we were. Uh, and I remember the bad sides of it, too. You know what I mean? After uh, December 4th was kind of the turning point, the real, um, you know, uh, 
no frills, I guess, kind of turning point when, when uh, Chairman Archambault declared a victory when Obama denied the easement to energy transfer to drill underneath sure. the river. You remember that? Mm-hmm. They, they declared a victory knowing, and, you know, knowing Trump was going to take office in less than 45 days or whatever. And I just, uh, I didn't see the, the wisdom of that move. And, and I couldn't live with telling these people to go home at the time. You know what I mean? And that's how I kind of got myself thrust into the forefront or, or becoming one of these personalities that that resulted from the No Dapple movement. That's it's, it's interesting, too, because I was one of these personalities before No Dapple. You know what I mean? So I had this this interesting perch, I guess. And and because I was a lawyer, I still am a lawyer, whatever, that, because I had nerded out on all this 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 federal Indian history, the doctrine of discovery, all that stuff. I was just in a place where I could explain what was going on from that perspective. And I think people appreciated that uh, who were who are watching. I'll meet people even today when I'm traveling wherever and they'll say that they watched the live feeds from the No Dapple movement. Um, but ultimately, uh, No Dapple is, uh, is, is a mixed legacy. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't go in there intending to get arrested uh, on February 1st. I was arrested, however, uh, for criminal trespass. Well, I knew I was going to be arrested for criminal mm-hmm. trespass. There, there was a, a ceremony going on up on this hill um, at Last Child's Camp, it was called. And um, I knew that, uh, the, that something was going to happen. The, the, the cops were coming. I went over to the, to the, to the bridge. And, uh, and I didn't even speak. This is the, I want to tell this, this, this little story because... We went to the bridge, and I didn't say a word. Uh, I had on some winter gear, and you couldn't tell who I was. And so the police uh, talked to the other members of our little crew there, and um, uh, at the end of everything, after at the end of about five minutes of talking, uh, they asked for me. They asked for me by name. And they had uh, referenced the live feed videos that I had done and said that if anything bad happened that they were going to hold me personally responsible, basically saying they were going to throw the book at me. And in hindsight now, you know, I spent two days in jail uh, from February 1st. So it it took them 48 hours of deliberation. Like some people met and decided what to charge me with. And they charged me with inciting a riot, which is a class C felony. It's five year max charge. I have prior felonies and my trial is November, you know, the first two weeks in November. Uh, the judge, I'm satisfied enough with the judge. We had a really, we, we, we had another judge before this one. And uh, the, the judges play a huge role in, in, in what kind of trial you're going to have, what kind of discovery process he's going to allow, what he's going to allow us, how, who he's going to allow us to probe. And it's important in our trial that we probe Tiger Swan, that would probe energy transfer partners and, and anybody in the state apparatus that was involved with those parties. Uh, it's important that we probe that. But in order to do that, you need somebody to be faced with risk and under the, the gun of a trial. And, and you need a discovery process. A lot of documents have come out that have shown what looks to be one of the first times. I mean, I, and I guess in, in modern history, one of the first times that that private security personnel hired by the fossil fuel industry were giving free reign over state and federal lands to do whatever the hell they wanted. People, they had a list of journalists, they had a list of people who were organizing camps, they had 
They had snitches all up in the camp everywhere, dressed up like natives, acting like native. And, and you know, and and one of the things, you know, you, there was even a, a brother of a BIA, a BIA police officer. His brother was, was embedded into the camp, giving information on people, telling on people. And 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 if you followed the the um the trial, um what was the girl's name? Not Red Red Fawn. Yeah, Red Fawn. Red Fawn. Almost said Red Don Foster would get it. Red Fawn's trial. You realize that that the gun that she had that day belonged to old boy who was a snitch working with all the cops. And 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 these things were happening over and over and over. And and so when when we talk about how there was a meeting looking at you know who are we gonna arrest at this situation, who are we gonna arrest here. There's plenty of evidence that shows that that private contractors were tapping phones, they were tapping social media feeds, they had infiltrators within the camp. They did everything they could to undermine this movement to protect the water. And 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 I don't and I and without getting too much into into you know or trying to be be your defense attorney, it, it kind of looks like you were one of the people who might have been targeted for your your advocacy work prior to this prior to to Standing Rock. Definitely. If you if you look at those those early charts on the intercept and so forth, I didn't know um that they were identical because I certainly wasn't a leader at the No Dapple movement until I would say after uh I became a voice. I, we, we were run, we were the shipment crew. Like we ran this this operation um and and you know a lot of operations got ran out of uh Standing Rock. I know there's a lot we could we could talk about a lot about Standing Rock. Um but uh, the pipeline is there now, you know what I mean? And, and so Standing Rock also has another effort that I happen to be a part of called the Clean Water Campaign. And we're trying to figure out, the tribe itself is trying to figure out how to deal with this undeclared water disaster that they have waiting to happen there with a half a million barrels of oil flowing through every day. We, we don't, I don't know if we even have a plan, bro. We, if we went down, if there was a spill right now, we would have to reach out to all of our, our sister tribes, anybody that, that would help so, so we can, again, the Humpapa, you know, a camp at the end of the horn, and they're always they're the first line of defense, and that's what we're having to do again up there with this oil pipeline. If it breaks, and, and there's, no, there's no if, it's when, we're going to be the first line of defense. So we, we got to get that taken care of, but at the, at the same time, the trials are still going on, we need to be talking about Tiger Swan, the, the level of encroachment, rights violations, the level of surveillance, I mean, that we know about. You know what I mean? I mean, we're talking the stuff that Edwin, Edward Snowden was, was, was leaking about. Mm -hmm. the, the, this is the level of surveillance they had in their, sit rep, their situation report. Tiger Swan, the private military contractor with real life and death experience in the Middle East, a child of Blackwater, uh, Tiger Swan is, they have surveillance information and mentioned my daughter, who was 13 years old at the time, wanting to know or you know keeping a track of where she travels to, where she speaks, and so forth. Same with me. It's really it was it's it's creepy. Uh, it sure. it it really kind of uh, uh, hits you in a place where you know you feel monitored, and that's just that's just the reality though that we live with now is that, you know just kind of assuming that everything is monitored and. Uh, my activism has always reflected that kind of mind state as well. I mean, security culture is what in activism world they call that, you know. And for those of you guys who don't know what Blackwater is, Blackwater is the the firm start, the security firm that that was you know had the private contractors in Iraq that was started by Eric Prince. Eric Prince is the brother of 
uh, Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos. So it's it's really interesting that so many powerful entities, so many powerful government organizations have decided to, to invest so much energy into tamping down the Indian threat. And, and, and it's always been like that throughout history. You know, you look at you look at AIM in the 70s with Counter Intel Pro, you know, they were doing the same things there. They were, in, you know, they were injecting, you know, snitches to within the, the camps, within the, the meetings to, to try to create unrest, you know, try to create you know, distance between people who are trying to come together. And, 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 and it was on full display in Standing Rock. So you're getting ready to go up to trial real soon in the coming months. And, and you have one of the more interesting defenses. And it's one that's been kind of used by by eco-activists or, or people who are resisting corporations, big oil or whatever. And it's called a necessity defense. And what it claims is that you had no choice but to act to prevent further harm, and and it's and it's something that has stood within the American judicial system for a long time, and it, and it, and it is something that has been used successfully, and even recently it's been used successfully by people opposing some some stuff in Wisconsin, I believe. I have to check on that, but you kind of want to talk about about how you're applying that to this situation without going into too much detail, I guess. So. I didn't know about the necessity. I mean, I remember reading about the necessity of defense. It's kind of like uh, like self defense. Um, but Danny, Danny Sheehan is the. Uh, I think, as far as I know, it could have been Lanny. I think it's Danny though. But I have these two uh, experienced, you know, just uh, battle tested attorneys um, on on my team. And so Danny, I believe, thought of the the necessity defense to use it in this context. Now, it just means that you, you take an action to prevent. A greater harm, um, and there are certain ways that that is used, uh, especially in the in the in the eco activism context. And, and the way that we're familiar with, that I was familiar with is that they are chaining themselves to the bulldozer or, or doing whatever direct action they're doing to prevent this uh, corporation from causing human, you know, more human caused climate change, uh, and. Sometimes that won, and more recently we've seen it win. I, I don't know if it's Wisconsin. I know for sure in London um, and somewhere in the East, probably Wisconsin, uh, that it, that it worked. That people submitted this defense and said, "Look, it we're in such a, a, a critical danger for from climate change and, and all these existential crises, and this is uh, the action that we had to take." In our case, we're using that, you know, climate change is, is, is one of a few greater harms that we're trying to prevent. The other greater harm that we're trying to prevent that, that you know, why I had to take those actions, um, why we all had to take those actions, is to prevent the destruction of our only tribal drinking water source, you know, and, and the destruction of our water rights. They, they, they didn't even blink about our water rights and so forth. Um, additionally, uh, the greater harm that we are going to prevent, that we that we are trying to prevent, um, is is the uh, the rights violations that are that are being the discrimination that is being committed by Tiger Swan in their internal documents, in their and they're creating their this culture um, that labels us and treats us as terrorists, uh, eco terrorists, uh, indigenous jihadists these other terms that they use. And, and strangely enough, in North Dakota, people have a right, a constitutional right, state constitutional right, to 
their reputation. So they, they could be in violation there as well. Uh, but the, the discrimination uh, of that, and um, I think I think that's it. There might be another one, but but those are those are the, the greater harms that we're trying to prevent. And we have a hearing in August uh, about our necessity defense. So that's that's when that will really, um, you know, it'll hit the, hit, hit the courtroom. When you were talking, I just kind of go back to talking about you, you guys are, you, you have this collective or this partnership looking at what happens when the pipeline breaks. And, and I kind of want to talk about those efforts, but I mean, and we can, one of the things that, that I've always heard that I don't know if it's true or, or if you've heard it, but I've had sources come to me and ask me to talk to you about it to see if you've heard this, but that was their word that that the pipeline was coming to these lands in, in Standing Rock and, and coming through there prior to the official release. I'm, what, what I'm asking is, is there a chance that tribal government, it, tribal governments in the area knew that this was going to happen, knew that it was going to be rammed down their throat before the people did and, and failed to act? And one of the things that I've been told by multiple people is that there may have even been an attempt to put in like backup water systems, you know, prior to the building of the pipeline. And and I don't and, and all these stuff is rumors because there's so many rumors out there about Standing Rock and there's and there's people looking to, to fill in a narrative and create, you know, the bash tribal government if they did or didn't do this or do that. But there's definitely talk that that tribal government in Standing Rock knew that this was coming, had had notification that it was coming and took precautions in the event that there is a spill, or, or when the spill actually comes, and, and I don't know if you've heard this or, you know, encountered some of this information. I will. I will say that uh, the Standing Rock Nation, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, uh, had to had to have known that their uh, uh, tribal history, their their tribal government. So they're they're required. Uh, you know, the government is required to consult them, or any uh, constructing party is required to uh, consult the tribe. But the, the issue is. Here, the the notice of this uh, of this consultation, the the Energy Transfer Partners is claiming because they published it in the Bismarck Tribune that this was enough notice for the Standing Rock Nation, and the Standing Rock Nation uh, knew about it, but for whatever per reasons, uh, didn't attend those uh, initial uh, hearings that were published in the Bismarck Tribune. But we really uh, Standing Rock took 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 an L for that one. You know, we took a hit for that because it, it just it it just sounds bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and it looks bad, but you know, always uh, the the requirements of the federal law for consultation aren't aren't clear. They don't say whether energy transfer partners should come to the reservation, you know, and seek those people out, seek us out. As and and they did, as a matter of fact, energy transfers came to a, a tribal council meeting where they were told, you know, in, in in no uncertain terms that the tribe did not consent to this. And that they would fight it, you know, till till the end. Sure. Tribal government up there took a lot of lumps for how they how they could, you know, uh, some, you know, there was a representative from Cannonball who who told everybody to leave, and you know, he was upset, and he ended up getting hemmed up on some on related, you know, like sex crime charges or whatever. But he was one of the biggest critics of of, of people coming to his his district and setting up camp and, and and resisting and everything. And there was a few other voices like that within tribal government and. From the outside looking in, it, it, it just seemed counterintuitive, but from, from people living actually within that district or, or living in Standing Rock, was that, that kind of become a, 
you know, almost like a resistance fatigue or, or, you know, did they kind of become worn out at some point because of what was taking place? I, I think so. I, I, I don't, I, I think about this often. I don't know what the political climate is on Standing Rock. Like how many people were really down to fight the pipeline and how many people just really kind of didn't care about it, you know, because yeah. uh, it, it is, it's a complex deal. And when you're the host, you know, location, the welcome gets worn out pretty quickly. And I think a little bit of that happened. We didn't expect this fight to be that long. Also, uh, we weren't necessarily a community of activists. You know what I mean? Sure. Like um, seasoned activists. I think uh, that w w what would be required of tribal leaders uh, w would be to have that level of commitment where they're willing to risk, you know, prison or death or loss of liberties or reputation or whatever you got to risk to protect your water resource. Um, I think some of us were expecting that from tribal leadership and it just, it wasn't, that's not a knock on them. You know, they're, they're sure. like, they're like congressional reps or whatever. They're, they're legislators. They're, they have that job to do. Um, and we weren't ready for the, the scope of the whole thing, the gravity, gravity of the whole fight, the, the eyes of the world, focusing squarely on Standing Rock. You know, I, people did pretty well under the circumstances. Um, but, but, but again, uh, there, there is, uh, you can feel it. It's palpable for everybody who was at the camp. There's questions about money. There's questions uh, of, of, of who took what, uh, equipment, who, who made the most money off of these fundraising sites and where people have gone from then. And it, I take a view of it and, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but the same thing happened to the American Indian movement, the Black Panthers and, and so forth. And, and probably is happening to, you know, uh, the water protector movement, uh, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter and so forth. You know what I mean? That's just sure. kind of the nature of the game. Um, and so I really, I appreciate how complex it is and that, that, that there are there are bad things, there are harsh things that we should be talking about um, in hindsight because Standing Rock was tested, you know, and when it came down to it, Standing Rock asked people to leave and that was their political will at that time. Probably because they were under a, a tremendous amount of pressure or maybe it was a well thought out plan by the governor Dalrymple, you know, mm -hmm. North Dakota to put that roadblock up cut all the casino profits that were coming into, you know, into, that's our only discretionary income, that the feds don't ha get a say of how we, what we do with that, you know what I mean? So, what do we do with that? We help our elders, we pay their electricity bills, their heating bills, and so forth, and when that, when they, when they get word, people in distress in that imposed poverty culture, they get word that that money's not going to be there, they want the water protectors gone, you know what I mean? That's, and then we have to deal with that, the follow of that, but there are very, there are other fights going on now that I think, uh, like Kinder Morgan is going on right now. Uh, line three, I, I know LNG was an uh, in, in issue, um, but they, the fight seems to have evolved. What we know is that there was, I, I feel that there was, you know, a, a change in the global consciousness that happened from Standing Rock, that we, by, 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 doing the work that we do um, and just trying to communicate it and give, give it contours and forms 
Um, we have to keep working at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I always looked at the energy that was started there and just the spiritual energy and, 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 the, and the, the coming together and, and then the lessons that were taught about working you know, on these type of movements in the, in light of the, the surveillance culture that, that's there, in light of the aggressive, you know, militarized security personnel, all these things that have, have created a primer for other people going forward. You know, what do we expect? Oh, we, we expect snitches. You know, what do we expect? Do we expect people to diss our name? We expect overhanded, heavy, violent tactics from police. Those things are coming, and, and now you have legislatures basically criminalizing our ability to resist encroachment on treaty lands. And, and these are state legislatures that are, that are overstepping their boundaries, in my opinion, to where, you know, you know what's his name, uh, Dugard in South Dakota, you, you can't gather in like more than 10 people anywhere near a construction site. You do it, you're getting hit with a felony. And, and what you don't realize is that these prisons are already filled up with our people. You don't realize that there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of crazy people right now in Pine Ridge. Got no problem going up there, standing in front of Keystone XL and getting locked up. It's not like we're not already filling up his prisons. You know what I'm saying? You're on to something. It's kind of like Gaza. You know what I mean? People are, are trying to escape a Holocaust there. And on a different scale, you know, mm -hmm. there's in poverty is imposed. There's a slower, less visceral genocide happening to us here, too. And so you get that, there, you, you, there's a place of desperation. And I think we can, we feel it, we know it, we see the signals, what they would call climate change. We, we take those as messages, you know what I mean? When, when Pele is, is doing whatever she's doing over there, whenever there's earthquakes or, you know, certain messages, um, we just, we pay attention and we know we have to do something. And, 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 it, and we're hardwired in our DNA and because we've kept these, these uh, our sacred covenants with these universal forces, indigenous people, original people still have these gifts and, and we still have a duty and the ability to, you know, to protect what needs to be protected and to really, we're trying to re-civilize the whole world, man. And, and it's just, um, we need more podcasts. We need more access to mainstream. You know what I mean? Like we have a message to share. All of us do, um, and we need to be part of that, you know, that uprising, that evolution. You know, I'm tired of, 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 of their their paper Indians still in our columns, reshaping them, telling a different story and being mad about something that we don't even care about. You know, it's time for us to start skipping over that whole process, skip over the middleman and say, look, we have voices that are valuable on the reservation, you know, valuable that are valuable within our community. There are people we look up to who are not getting the run on the media or anywhere else that should be. And, and so once we're starting to take control of our own institutions, saying, look, we control our narrative, we control our stories. And, and, and I even look at it like now, like there's not a whole lot of Native American public relations companies out there. The ones that are out there, you know, they're, they're operating out of the big city. They, they, they don't realize that grandma and grandpa living down in Potato Creek don't have access to Internet. You know, there is no high-speed internet in some of our communities. The only way that you can reach some of our people is through old-fashioned newspapers, through flyers, through giving them a call. And yet they have this grand plan for how they're going to bring communications work to Indian country. And it just doesn't work that way. You have to understand the dynamics. But, mm -hmm. you know, back to, back to what, we were cre what people created at Standing Rock, I look at the personalities that came out of there. And, and I've seen a lot of people grow their celebrity from it. You know, a lot of people have a lot more opportunities that they have to speak on from. And, and I've, I'm not mad about that at all. For me, I, I kind of look at it like that. Like that's kind of the universe's way of 
you know, giving back to them for their sacrifices that they made up there, sitting there in the cold, you know, digging them yurts, helping each other out, praying daily, you know, putting their bodies on the line for the people. And and so when I see these people, you know, when I see like pro, my, my prolific, the rapper, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he blew up, you know, you see people like... Like, you know, like, like, I, I test Tara Hushka is one of them that was Myself, up there yourself. Uh, yeah. Dallas, yeah. Um, uh, LaDonna, you know what I mean? Just take, take any list. That's, that's just, that's not even, that's just a little bit of, but I agree. I yeah. agree. Uh, there was no, there was no, um, organization to it. You know what I mean? And we, it, it happened so fast that we couldn't be organized. We didn't have the benefit of thinking how to, to execute this thing. Hmm. When I was on the ground out there, I could see that we lacked that and I didn't know how to create it. But it needed to be created. But I, I think, uh, you know, we did, it happened how it was supposed to happen. Um, and we have to think of how to amplify it. Anything else you want to get out there? Any new initiatives? Any work? Um... Um, yeah, well, I, I am also going to be uh, releasing a podcast uh, series. But um, I haven't figured out the format of it. I was thinking more, my, it would just be monologues because... I live on Standing Rock, you know, out, mm -hmm. out in the boonies. Um, so otherwise, I'd have to figure out a way to, to interview people. You know what yeah. I mean? Because that's, 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 you definitely want to interview people. But at the beginning, um, it was going to be some monologues. Uh, and, and also, I mean, this I've been talking about this book forever. But I honestly uh, went to work on a book about, you know, within the last year. And uh, it was much harder than I thought. But I'm huh. working on a book. It's about 10% finished. Um, and, and a podcast and a book and then how to properly uh, monetize LRI and then just create a different environment online for, for native content creators, native media. Um, we just, and a lot of people are out there uh, evolving that game and, and killing it, so to speak. But I also think that um, the, the res again, it does get left out in the process because it just doesn't move as fast as it does like if, if you're in, in Seattle or, or LA or Denver or Minneapolis or, or wherever. Um, that's the benefit of being in those places, even DC, New York or, or wherever, is you get access to those those outlets. But on the, on the res, you don't so much. And so it's it, you're right. It's a total different um, thought process on how to reach different demographics because they're, they're reachable in different ways. But... Um, I guess just those those couple things. Um, I also wish wish you much success in, in Thank wherever you. you're going and with, with this, um, because there is space for it. That's the other thing when we're talking about the celebrity and the different things that came from No Dapple and, and as native people, we're always kind of looking at each other and wondering which one of us is going to be famous for reals. You know what I mean? In, yeah. in mainstream, it could be anybody. And, and and Godspeed and much props to everybody out there who's trying to. Enter into that space, take risks in there, uh, try to create something different for our people, our narrative, and our worldview. And then, and then, you know, those of us coming up behind us are going to even change the game for the better in ways that we couldn't even imagine. But we, we have to stay. I just feel that we have to stay true to the roots because that's really when we're talking about authenticity. The, the things that that mainstream or that even the world is looking for. Uh, even when you're talking about, you know, why people are seeking out that spiritual void that comes from the colonization process of the Western psyche. Uh, they're looking for spirit. And the original nations, the original civilizers of this hemisphere still have that. They, we still live it. It's still part of our day-to-day our -day existence. 
that's what I think is, is, is the most, um, I don't want to call it currency or, or capital because it's, it's demeaning to it. Sure. But that's that we will always continue to, to live there and, and be strong in that. And I think that's what people, people are looking for that. They, they want to, you know, feed off and, and be impacted by that energy. It helps them. It changes them in, in some way. We just we do that through our words, through our oration. You know what I mean? Historically, our, our speakers, our, our thinkers, our philosophers, the people who were this orators. Uh, they're kind of like warrior philosophers. Some of our some are. That's that's to say nothing of the women. I don't I don't know too much about what are you know our women's introspection, the benefit of their struggles, their their metaphysics really in their thought processes it needs to be all put out there like we need to be sharing that among ourselves native people just so we can come to grips with it you know what i mean and and, and just evolve mm -hmm.